Well, good evening. It is good to see you all this evening, even as we are split in two different directions. Some of us down at Mel Trotter and uh, the rest of us here this evening, we are uh, starting a new series tonight, a new series entitled Jonah. And uh, I'm looking forward to this series. This is a fun series that we have the opportunity to enter into this summer. The summer is going to be kind of caught up with some of the things that are going on. We always have Mother's Day and Father's Day and all of the challenges that come to the summer schedule as far as evening services are concerned. And so Jonah is a great time for us to, or great study for us to engage in during the summer. And uh, this is, tonight we're going to have a little bit more fun. We're a smaller group than normal, so we're going to have a little bit more fun with this. But where did you first learn about Jonah? Sunday school. Right? What, think of the, the other individuals, the Old Testament individuals that you learned about through Sunday school. Who are some of them? Moses, David, I heard. Abraham, Joseph, Gabriel, Nathan, what I, Adam and Eve. Very good. That wasn't coming all the way clear to me. So, uh, very good. So, what did you learn? Let's talk about Daniel. What did you learn about Daniel in Sunday school? The lion's den. Uh, what about Noah? The ark, the flood. What about Abraham? Okay, promised sacrifice of his son. Adam and Eve. The garden. So, you're illustrating my opening illustration for me. Uh, we have all in our Sunday school, when we've grown up through Sunday school, we hear of these significant events of the Bible, and we think that, at least as little kids, we think that, oh, I know all there is to know about Noah and the flood. And that's what we think about Noah. We don't think of anything after the flood, nor do we think of anything necessarily before the ark about Noah. And we do that with Moses. Uh, we could think of several instances where maybe we learned, I remember evaluating Sunday school curriculum for kids, and it seemed like you'd spend six weeks or seven weeks on Moses. You'd have Moses in Egypt, you'd have the Passover, you would have the parting of the Red Sea, the complaining of Israel in the wilderness, and ultimately maybe one or two lessons, maybe the sun standing still, and then the last days of Moses as Israel were to enter into the promised land. And we forget all of the other less than sensational events of Moses' life. And we've, we've come up and we know that. When we think of David, we think primarily of Goliath, David and Goliath. Maybe we think of David and Saul, but primarily we're going to think David and Goliath. When we think of the New Testament even, when you think of the name Zacchaeus, what do you think of? A wee little man. <laughs> I think of a sycamore tree, but now I also think of a wee little man. Uh, so we think of these sensationalized things of the New Testament as well and some of these individuals that have come along the way. But the book of Jonah is most often considered little more than an interesting fishing story, but uh, we recognize that it is far more than that. In less than 50 verses, actually 48 verses of Scripture, we observe a storm at sea, the conversion of idolatrous sailors, a miraculous rescue, a song of praise, 
The repentance of a brutal nation and the unfolding revelation of God's relationship to unrepentant Gentiles. 48 verses. All that's contained therein. We recognize that that is not to mention a very disobedient prophet. A prophet who would be an illustration of the resurrection of Christ. And how important that portion of the message of Jonah really is. We think of Jonah and the fish. But let us think far deep, deeper than that. Furthermore, we see God's work through creation. Think of the wind that's on the sea. Think of uh, the fish, a vine, a worm. In many ways, Jonah is a microcosm of God's relationship with and sovereignty over all of creation, all kingdoms, and all history. And so as we jump into the study of Jonah, we have an opportunity to jump into 48 verses where we are going to sink quickly, pun fully intended, uh, sink quickly into this study and enjoy it as we dive in, again, pun fully intended, uh, to dig into the book of Jonah. So turn to Jonah. We're going to spend some time here this evening. Really, we're going to introduce, and on occasion, I haven't done this a lot since I've been here, but on occasion, I want to dig into some of the background, and that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to dig in. We're not going to spend a lot of time in the text itself, but we're going to begin to understand the constructs. Because Jonah is one of those books, similar to Daniel, where there's a lot of attack on the historicity. How appropriate it is for us to sing ancient words this evening. Uh, Because Jonah is one of those books that is attacked because it seems too spectacular, too out of the world to actually have taken place. And we're going to see some of the attacks. We're going to start it in a little different way. We're going to look at some of the objections when we get there in a moment. But I want us to just read the the first little bit, the first three verses. We're only going to get into verse 1 tonight, but to kind of get some context. Scripture says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. We start there, and that's where you start in Sunday school, right? Jonah is fleeing from the things of the Lord, but there's a lot more to know about Jonah. And we're going to get into him a little bit this evening. Before we do, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that since childhood we've heard the events, the narratives of the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that tonight as we begin the study of Jonah, that we would not leave it in the spectacular, in those events that we remember from childhood, but that we would dig deeper. Lord, I praise you that Christ references Jonah and speaks specifically of the time that Jonah would spend in the belly of a fish. We praise you that those three days would be an illustration that Christ would use to demonstrate his own resurrection. Lord, we also praise you that we see a faithfulness in Jonah before these years. We are challenged that we must end well. So tonight, as we dig into the book of Jonah, help us to understand more about the book itself. Help us to understand more about the individual that would be your instrument to bring the greatest Gentile revival, perhaps in the history of the world. Lord, we look forward to digging into these 48 verses over the next several weeks. Pray that you'd give me the words to speak, give us hearts to listen, 
it'd be attuned to dig in deeply into the text that is before us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Our title this evening is Jonah, Not Your Average Fish Story. We're going to dig into, that's kind of our overall theme for the fullness of the book. And there's going to be a lot more writing tonight for you to do. We've got some objections that we're going to look at here, which is our first point. As we look at some of these objections, there's five of them. And we seldom consider the book of Jonah, that the book of Jonah rather details the record of the greatest national revival perhaps ever recorded. Think of the city of Nineveh, city quite large for its time, brutal in every way. We're going to define some of that brutality later. Think of the city of Nineveh hearing the word of the Lord in the shortest revival message you're ever going to hear. And the city repents. This is the greatest national revival, like I said, perhaps ever recorded following the shortest sermon to ever be preached. And yet, massive numbers of people come to a, a, a knowledge of Christ, a knowledge of the Lord, and perhaps even a saving knowledge of the soon coming Savior. The book details the mercy of God who sent Jonah, a prophet of Israel, to a Gentile nation. In fact, we never think about Jonah being the only prophet on record to be sent to a heathen nation with a message of repentance. That's what he is. And we're going to have the joy of spending some time here. One author says this, We don't immediately think of Jonah as a signature sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is no wonder that Satan has attempted to smear the book of Jonah. For centuries, liberal professors and pastors, along with many other so-called scholars, have attempted to downplay, discredit, deconstruct, and thus destroy the credibility of the 48 inspired verses of Scripture that we find in the book of Jonah. Satan has done all he can to smear out this book. And tonight we're going to look at some of those objections. The first objection is this. There's an objection to the book of Jonah because it contains an abundance of miracles. What do you say to that? Okay. (laughs) You object because an all-powerful, all-knowing God is capable of doing things that are beyond our imagination. That doesn't seem like much of an argument, but it is an argument that is out in our world today. And I keep your fingers here in Jonah. It is one that we understand here. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just briefly, I just want to read why this is a challenge. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. We've studied this in times past, so I'm just making reference to it again. We actually were here during the Easter series a bit. The Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Really, ultimately, the question that happens with the book of Jonah is, there are those who seek to discredit and to deny the Lord God. And they will do anything and everything that they possibly can to discredit and deny the Lord God, and specifically, His Word. And so they'll find any reason to do so, including that a book in the Bible contains miracles. Well, we can't understand this by natural law, and so therefore it could not have happened. Liberal scholars do not believe that God sent a fish to swallow Jonah because most of them don't believe that God created the fish to begin with. So if you don't believe that God created the fish to begin with, you don't have God commanding a fish to go swallow Jonah, arranging for the fish to be there at the appropriate time to swallow Jonah. 
And so this is really a statement of disbelief and not really scholarly, although it is set up as a, an argument that would be purported to be scholarly. Well, we don't have scientific evidence to support this. Well, uh, that seems like to, be, like to me to be a very weak argument. But that is one of the primary objections to the book of Jonah. Another of the primary objections is that it's a rather unique mission that God sends Jonah on. And to that I would say, amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord, God did. Uh, we're going to learn a lot. It's interesting, and, and I'm going to make reference to this later. It's fascinating to me that Jonah spends decades in faithful service to the Lord. Decades. We're going to read one verse out of Second Kings in a few moments. And when we read that one verse out of Second Kings, that is the summation of his message for decades. That's the only verse recorded for decades of ministry in the life of Jonah. Until... Verse 1 of Jonah 1. And then there's a whole book, 48 verses written on his mistakes. Faithful ministry, decades long, one verse. A few months of rebellious prophets and an entire book. But you and I learn a lot from the mistakes of those who have gone on before us. And we have a lot to learn from Jonah's mistakes. It is pointed out, as we think of this objection, uh, it is pointed out that God had never before commissioned a Jewish prophet to go to Gentile nations. That is the argument of this. It's, a, it's too unique. It's a unique mission. God didn't tell his prophets to go to the Gentile nations, but that is not necessarily true. Elijah and Elisha both made contact with foreign and pagan kings. Moses interacted with Pharaoh, calling him to repentance, calling him to obedience, even though Pharaoh would not. Later, after the book of Jonah, you have Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah, all having access to the highest levels of Gentile governments, and all being a witness for the God of Israel. In fact, the nation of Israel was to be a witness that the God of Israel is different than all of the other gods of the peoples around them. So it is the very nature of Israel being set apart as God's people that would scream to the Gentile nations that the Lord God is the God that they should be following. And so, again, I think that this objection is somewhat of a, a misnomer, a misunderstanding of the purpose of the law, the purpose of Israel, the purpose of the prophets of God. By the way, when we see prophets of Israel, it usually means judgment to the nation of Israel. Nearly every time it is. And so we recognize that as well. The people would rebel. The people would hear the word of the Lord from the, the prophet. They would repent. They would return back to the things of the Lord. It, it would flow that the Lord would do this with the Gentile nation as well. While Jonah's ministry was during Jeroboam, so if we understand the division, you have... Solomon, whose kingdom is divided into two, a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. We've talked a little bit about this in Sunday evening before. But his son Rehoboam and Jeroboam, or his two sons, divided up the kingdom. Jeroboam took the northern kingdom, and Jeroboam II reigned from 793 to 753 B.C. And it is during that time that God's mercy was still evident to the nation of Israel because he sent a prophet whose name was Jonah. And it was during that time that Jonah served 
the Lord, Israel, and, begrudgingly, Nineveh. And so we recognize Jonah's ministry was during that time. And actually, the preconceived notions of the liberal scholars are Jonah's feelings exactly. This is a rather unique mission. That's why he gets onto a boat to go to Tarsus. That's why in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the scripture says in the book of Jonah, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is Jonah's thought. He agrees, actually, with the liberal scholars. He he says, Lord, why are you sending me to Nineveh? Don't you know those are bad people up there? I don't want to go to Nineveh. The city, the capital, one of the premier capital cities of the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh was not a good place to be a Jew. It was not a good place to be an Israelite. And Jonah knew that. So Jonah agrees with the liberal scholars who say this is rather a unique mission, but the Lord sends Jonah anyway. Uh, to go to Tarsus, or to go rather to Nineveh, away from Tarsus. Uh, the third objection: Jonah's own references to Nineveh. And Jonah here in verse one, or rather in verse two uh, of chapter one, says that Nineveh is a great city. The, he's speaking as if the Lord was speaking to him. He says Nineveh is a great city. Jonah writes that though in the past tense, using the word "was." Nineveh was a great city. The argument is made that since Jonah uses a past tense, that the city must no longer be in existence. So this is not the Jonah of Jeroboam's time, according to liberal scholars. This is another Jonah, or one who's writing as if he was Jonah. But again, that's in the narrative, you expect some of that. Jonah is writing it down. He's referring to the size of the city. He's not saying that that was a large city a long time ago. He's saying... It is a large city. It's an exceedingly great city. It's a capital city. And so the language that he uses is appropriate in narrative writing. As he's illustrating and pointing out the city itself of its size. Which is the next argument. These two objections flow together. And that is the next argument is the size of Nineveh. He's referencing not only his reference to the exceedingly great city of Nineveh, but he's also, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, saying that it takes three days to walk across the city of Nineveh. Well, later I'm going to show an image of the city of Nineveh. It actually is shaped somewhat like Jerusalem is shaped. It's kind of a a weird, elongated triangle shape, walled city in every way around it, and it doesn't take three days to walk across it the city within the city walls itself but Jonah says that it did that it took him three days scholars say that liberal scholars say well this was small enough he could have walked across the city of Nineveh in a day maybe less but again thinking of the city of Nineveh and the agricultural society that it was when you arrive in Nineveh you're a long way from the city of Nineveh We do this today in our cities today. When you arrive in the city of Chicago, you don't arrive in Chicago. 
you arrive in the suburbs of Chicago. And you're a long ways from downtown. You may not even see downtown Chicago for two or three days if you're walking. The same if you were to start out here in Grand Rapids, you would say, well, I'm from Grand Rapids. Somebody who's not from here asks where you're from. You're not going to say, well, I'm from the little tiny township of. You're going to say, I'm from Grand Rapids. And if you were to walk across Grand Rapids, it's going to take you a long time to walk north to south across Grand Rapids. So we recognize that there was considerable distance outside of the city walls. The city of Nineveh, where flocks would have been raised, crops would have been raised, irrigation and so forth would have taken place. And so the argument of saying, well, it took him three days, he was either walking really slow or he's not giving a factual account of Nineveh, is absurd when we understand that when he arrived in Nineveh, he may not have even been able to see the city itself, but he is walking through the city of Nineveh as he's walking towards the heart of the city. And so, traveling on foot, it would likely take several days to walk through the city of Nineveh all the way from one side to the other. The final objection is Jonah doesn't speak that well. That's the ultimate objection, Jonah's vocabulary. The intention of this is to say that Jonah's words are incompatible with Jonah's vocabulary, which I find fascinating because Jonah's vocabulary is the book of Jonah. We don't know anything else from him that he spoke other than one small verse in 2 Kings. And that was quoting what the Lord had said. So we don't know what Jonah's actual capacity for vocabulary was. And this is a true grasp at some straws. We are uncertain of Jonah's vocabulary. However, Jonah, being a prophet, uses words that Scripture has used before and after. There are very few unique words in the book of Jonah. So it's not as if Jonah is developing a new vocabulary. He is borrowing from words that have been found in the pages of Scripture before and after. As a prophet of God, we would assume that Jonah would have read the pages of Scripture. Therefore, stands to reason that he would use the words that Scripture has used. Jonah does that. So that argument doesn't float either. We recognize that there's a lot of challenges then that come uh, with more outside, smaller challenges that uh, are attacking the book of Jonah. But ultimately, all of them boil down to the same. There is the denial, the inspired word of God, and it does not matter if it's in the book of Jonah or the book of Esther or the book of James or any of the other inspired books of the Old or New Testament. There is an attack against the authority of Scripture. But we recognize Christ affirms that Jonah was a real man. Christ affirms that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish. We recognize that Jonah served literally in the courtrooms of Jeroboam II, that he proclaimed the message of the Lord from Jeroboam. So Jonah is a real individual. Despite the attacks, the truth remains. Jonah was a real man with a real mission living at a real time. There's also another attack, and I didn't include this one, but we could if you have space in your notes yet. There's another attack, and that is 
not so much an attack against the book of Jonah, but the way that we interpret the book of Jonah. And the idea is that there's so many spectacular events in the book of Jonah that they have to be allegory, that they are not literal interpretation of Scripture, that they didn't literally happen. Largely because, how does someone survive three days in a fish? That is the attack. So therefore, it must be an allegory, an allegory pointing to Christ. He is a type of Christ, would be the argument that is made in the allegory. And while Christ says, indeed, that he is an illustration of the resurrection of Christ, he affirms that Jonah literally spent three days in the belly of a fish. And so we must believe that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish. We recognize that Jonah's ministry was all about telling Israel what would happen. In fact, during his proclamation, he said that the northern kingdom of Israel would regain some territory that it had lost. And 2 Kings recounts that indeed Israel regained the land that was lost as told by Jonah, the son of Amatai. So we recognize that Jonah is real. And so let us, we've talked about it a lot already, let us get into the introduction to the book of Jonah, and first we're going to understand some background. To do so, we need to turn back to the passage I've been referencing this evening, back to 2 Kings. So turn back to 2 Kings. We're going to see the one mention of him in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. 2 Kings 14 verse 25. Jeroboam is ruling now. He is the king. He's the son of Joash, king of Israel. Verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the king of Joash, or the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebhamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amatai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So there's a lot of information, oddly enough, here that we learn. By the time that Jonah wrote the book, he had already been serving a number of years in Jeroboam II's rule, or during Jeroboam II's rule, who reigned in the northern kingdom of Israel 750 years before Christ. So Jeroboam, Jeroboam II is ruling, and we see Jonah serving in that court. Jonah had delivered a prophecy, we're told here in verse 25. He delivered a prophecy that had been fulfilled that the northern kingdom would restore some of its lost territory. It had lost territory. Jeroboam II would restore that territory, some of that territory, and indeed that is what is being accounted for here. So that is the context. That's why Jonah is in the office of Jeroboam. That's why he's in the audience of him, and that is his proclamation. But the writer of 2 Kings gives to us a little bit more information. He says that, Jero, that Jonah was from Gath-Hepfer. We're going to look into that place in just a moment. But he also says that he was there in the court. So we've got a real person serving in the court. He's told Jeroboam II of the, 
the promise, the prophecy that the Lord had given to him, and probably many others as well. So in the text in 2 Kings, we're given the detail of Gath-Hepfer. Anybody know where Gath-Hepfer is? Gath-Hepfer is three miles northwest of Nazareth. Who came from Nazareth? Christ. Isn't it fascinating that the illustration that would be used of the resurrection of Christ by Christ himself grew up in the same neighborhood as Christ did? I find it fascinating that in that location, it's a beautiful location by the way, uh, not far from Nazareth, just a few miles from Nazareth, just a little bit to the northwest, and that is where Jonah grows up. Jonah was a significant prophet. We recognize his significance because he was likely a leading prophet among the school of prophets. So there was a group of prophets that was serving at the time. We have some of their names. Amos is one of them. Obadiah is another one of them. Jonah, all serving at the same time in the, nation, in the land of Israel, both the northern kingdom, primarily in the northern kingdom, and some in the southern kingdom of Israel. So there's a number of prophets who are serving Israel at this time, and Jonah seems to be the leading prophet among them. Jonah probably sat under the tutelage of Elisha. Elisha probably was his mentor. So he served faithfully and diligently. He was at the end of what would seem to be a remarkable career, a remarkable ministry. Jonah had served the Lord faithfully. He'd been dedicated to the Lord for decades Having learned from Elisha, having been the leading prophet among the prophets of Israel, his name would be revered by the Jewish people, so much so that Simon Peter was, would have the original name Simon Bar-Jonah. That is, Simon the son of Jonah, or from Jonah, having the same characteristics as Jonah. And boy, did he ever... Uh, Peter had those characteristics that Jonah had at the end of his life, at least. Andrew was also named, Matthew 16, 17. Both uh, Simon Peter and Andrew had the name Jonah in their name. That's, the people of Israel revered Jonah's name, revered Jonah himself as a prophet. Even Josephus, after the time of Christ, would mention Jonah in his writings and how much the people of Israel looked back to the person of Jonah. Jonah was real. He was neither fantasy nor was he fiction. And he is the one that in 2 Kings would be in the court of Jeroboam II. We're given more detail about him there than we are in the book of Jonah because we know where he came from because of 2 Kings. But now we turn back to the book of Jonah as we continue to do a bit of an overview of the book. So, Again, in an introduction sermon, we're just getting in, we're just kind of understanding some themes, some outlines, some of the way that it plays together or lays in together. And we recognize that in verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This phrase, the word of the Lord came, is a mark of authentication. It's to authenticate a true prophet as opposed to a false prophet. For Jonah, it was the authentic mark of his prophetic ministry. 
not just now in the book of Jonah, but prior to this as well. So now the Lord is speaking again to Jonah, and this is also not only a mark of authentication, but it is a mark that something's about to happen. When you're reading through the pages of Scripture, and the word of the Lord came to fill in the blank with whatever prophet, you know something is about to happen. The Lord is about to reveal himself in a powerful way, and that is certainly true here in the book of Jonah. Concerning Jonah, there is nothing more about his ministry or his hometown. The book of Jonah contains nothing about Jonah's ministry, other than what unfolds from verse 1 through the end of chapter 4. We see that it's only just a period of months. Jonah is an aged prophet by this time. He's likely served some 30 or 40 decades in the prophetic ministry to the Lord. So Jonah's probably somewhere in his 60s to 70s, maybe 80s, as he's serving the Lord. He's been faithful and he's been diligent until this point. There's nothing about the timing when the word of the Lord came. Jonah doesn't give to us those kinds of details either. We just know from the text of what happened to Jeroboam, the ministry that had taken place there, we actually learn that from 2 Kings rather than from the book of Jonah. So there's nothing that clutters the book. Jonah just goes right in, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 4, and it's one detail after the other. Boom, 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 boom. There's, there's no extra information. There's no extra details. It's fast-paced, and it lays it out forward as one event after the other transpires. But we are given an interesting glimpse into the person Jonah by his name. So the name Jonah and also the name of his father. The name of his father is Amatai. And we know nothing about Amatai. There's no other details except he comes up again in 2 Kings, as we saw a moment ago, and here in Jonah. The name Amatai is actually where we get our word amen from. Our word amen comes from Amatai. And it means faithful or true. So when we pray, and there's this, this is an important element for us in our prayers, when we say amen, we are asserting or certifying the truthfulness of the prayers. So we're not lying to the Lord. And so everything we've prayed, we're saying we've laid this out, it's faithful, it's true, we're certifying the truthfulness of it. That's what it means to say amen. And that's what Amadi's mean, name means as well. Jonah's name refers to the dove of peace. So when you see Jonah, it is this reference to peace, it is a reference to dove, and we see that throughout the pages of Scripture. Whenever the dove of the Lord is, is there, there's peace. Think of Noah and the ark. He sends out a dove, and it returns with a branch, and the judgment of God <clears throat> upon the face of the earth is completed. There's peace again. <clears throat> we see the dove again descending on Christ at the baptism of Christ. And you hear the voice of the Lord saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so there is this idea of Jonah <clears throat> being a dove of peace and Amatai's name, who means faithful or true. So he's the true messenger of peace is the idea. Well, how interesting that Jonah would be called to the city of Nineveh as a messenger of peace. The cruelty of the Assyrians in Nineveh was evident to all in the world at the time. And it's 
clear to us as well. If you were to go into the Oriental Institute, again in uh, Chicago, and you are touring, there's an Assyrian room where you walk through the museum in the Assyrian room, there is images of the conquering Assyrian army. And when they would come through and conquer, they were vicious and they were brutal. It has been said that they were known for their legendary, legendary dismembering of their enemies. And they would do so one limb at a time. And the last limb that they would sever would be the right hand. And the reason why is so that you who were their victim could, would shake, they would force you to shake the hand of your enemy as they smiled and watched you bleed out. Cutting one limb off at a time. And then when you were done dying, they would chop your head off and carry it as a trophy. I remember when ISIS was doing their thing in the Middle East some time ago and a few, few years ago, and they would parade out their victims before their TV or their live stream broadcast on the internet, and then they would behead their victims. And how the world was aghast at such cruelty. There's nothing new under the sun, beloved. The Assyrians have been doing that since the time of Nineveh. And there, if you go into the Oriental Institute, you will walk past a wall, a relief that is found everywhere the Assyrians conquered. They would put this relief up, this imagery that was carved out of stone, and in it you would have Assyrian soldiers, and in one hand they would have their bow and arrow, in the other hand they would have the head of their victims as they were walking over the dismembered bodies of their victims. In other words, you stand in the way of the Assyrians, you lose all of your limbs and your head. That was the message that was being sent. And we still have evidence of its cruelty in the city of Chicago just by walking past the relief that is there. They were brutal. <clears throat> they were vicious in every way. And they would be sent a dove. A dove who spoke the truth, despite the fact that he didn't want to. And so that was the messenger that was going to go to them. Can you imagine, and there's no wonder that uh, Jonah wanted to flee to Tarsus, wanted to get away from the presence of the Lord. Like, you want me to go to those people, to the Ninevites, the capital city, the most cruel of the cruel, the most brutal of the brutal. You want me to go there and proclaim that destruction is coming to them? But if I do that, Lord, Jonah tells us a bit of this in chapter 4, if I do that, they're going to repent. Because I know the character of my God. And I know that they'll repent. Jonah says, why don't you just wipe them out? Why don't you just take care of them? Destroy them. So Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, obviously. We see he takes radical steps to avoid going to Nineveh. The outline is somewhat simple. We're not going to get into it too much uh, tonight, but really it's chapter 1, Jonah runs. And uh, jo in uh, chapter 2, Jonah swims. <laughs> and uh, chapter 3, Jonah flies to Nineveh. Chapter 4 and chapter 3, Jonah preaches. And then Jonah pouts in chapter 4. So 
That's basically, there's, it's Jonah, it follows Jonah's actions, his, his movements and his actions. And so we're not going to follow it exactly. Some have developed others, some have developed an outline that goes along with other examples, such as the prodigal son, and says there's some correlation between the illustration of the prodigal son, and, or the parable of the prodigal son, both the, the son who leaves and the son who stays. There's some correlation to Jonah, and so some have patterned it after that outline. But I think the, the book kind of speaks for itself. It's a simple five-point outline. One chapter, except for chapter three, it's divided into two sections, and it's all about Jonah's actions and movement. So that's pretty well our outline. But I want us to spend more time on the lessons to be learned. Lessons to be learned. We're only going to highlight a few of these, three in particular. And I'm assuming you know some details of the book of Jonah. We're going to dig into it again next week, and Lord willing, in more detail. But the first lesson that we should glean is that we are to be alert. Christians be alert. We're kind of using a Warren Wearsby outline here for these lessons. Uh, if you've ever read his study guides, it's be resolute, be alert, be watchful, all of those things. So we're going to join in the B series. I don't know if he actually uses these or not, but it just flowed. So I thought, oh, I'll use it anyway. Uh, tonight it's be alert. God has delivered his word to you as well as to Jonah. You hold in your laps the word of God and it tells you what you should be doing. Tells you how you should act, how you should behave in the society, and what you should say. Tells you you are to be witnesses for the glory of God. We have God's word. Let us be alert to what God is saying to us through his word. It's going to equip us for the journey that he leads us on in our individual life, but it's very important that we understand it. We spoke a little bit about this in my church history class this morning where you have certain individuals who are going too far. The Lord doesn't say to go that far. Pull back. Follow the direction of the Lord. And then there's other individuals who don't go far enough. Advance for the sake of Christ. Follow the Word of God. Those, it's a guiding light for us. Follow the Word of God. Obey it. Do what God commands you to do. So that is our first lesson. Jonah doesn't learn that real well. In fact, Jonah in the book doesn't learn that at all. He seems to catch it for a little bit. He begrudgingly goes to Nineveh, and then, and then he gets upset at the plant, and he gets upset at the Lord, and he just wants to curl up and die. So let us not be like Jonah. Let us be those who are alert to obey God's direction, because you're going to wind up there anyway. How much time do you have to spend in the belly of a fish to get there? That's the question. Obey the Lord. <clears throat> be alert. <clears throat> the second, be encouraged. God can use anyone and anything to accomplish His will. God can use anyone and anything to accomplish His will. So be encouraged. God uses pagan sailors. He uses a storm at, the, at sea. He uses a rather large fish, a plant, a worm, a stubborn and runaway prophet. All in 48 verses. So be encouraged. God can use anyone and anything to accomplish His will. This is the grace of God. The book of Jonah is the grace of God in living color. Even then, the faltering Jonah was God's choice to bring about the greatest national revival in history. 
even as the runaway prophet, the grace of God in living colors demonstrated in Jonah. So our first one is be alert. Second one, be encouraged. Third, be careful. Past obedience does not guarantee future obedience. I think of all the lessons we could learn, it is probably this one that is the most important for us this evening. Be careful. Past obedience does not guarantee future obedience. Jonah is likely, as I said, likely an old man when the events of this book took place. And his greatest test was reserved for his last years. Reserved for the years after retirement. Reserved for the years after he had served in Jeroboam's court, Jeroboam II's court. Jonah had served the Lord for decades, ministering in the highest levels. And now the Lord in Jonah's retirement is sending Jonah to a city he doesn't want to go to, to Nineveh. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says this, These accounts were given to you as an example. I mentioned this earlier. There is only one verse in the decades of Jonah's faithful service. One verse. But 48 verses, an entire book, on the few months of disobedience. These accounts were given as an example. We would have read through the events of Jonah, marveled at the goodness of God in, to the people of Nineveh, and not learned many lessons. But when Jonah is swallowed by a fish and spit back out on the shore and goes to Nineveh and the city repents, we say, wow, look at the mercy of God to Jonah, to the Ninevites, to the sailors on the ship. And then we see Jonah pout. And we learn more lessons because of the negative example of Jonah. So therefore, let us be those who learn more from the mistakes of Jonah. Jonah is a book for saints who get it wrong. And it is also a book to amaze and thrill and challenge us to get it right. And so as we began to study in the book of Jonah, let us be those who dig deeply into Jonah's negative example. We recognize that Jonah kind of gets a bad rap. For those of us who live in this time, so many hundreds of years removed, we look at Jonah and say, wow, what happened to you? We don't look at Jonah in the eyes that Christ looked at Jonah. Isn't it fascinating to know that Christ didn't shy away from using Jonah as an example, an illustration of the resurrection of Jesus? Jesus didn't shy away. Jesus didn't say, yeah, I was going to use him as an example until he was whining underneath a plant that had withered. Pouting over the mercy of God. Instead, Jesus uses that example to show the mercy of God and all the more because of the cross of Christ. So Jesus uses the example of Jonah. The example of Jonah's rebellion to teach us a lesson on the mercy, grace, and compassion of our great God. So we have a lot to learn from the book of Jonah. 
As you can see, there is a, uh, maybe you can't see it, you should see a little subtle fish in the background. Uh, we don't know if it was, someone asked me a while back, was it a whale or a fish? I have no idea. The scripture says it was a fish. So in other words, it lived in the sea, and it swam, and large enough to swallow Jonah. Um, some have said it was a grouper, one of the great big fish that maybe, maybe it was a whale, we don't know. Regardless, the Lord used a fish for his purposes to show his compassion and mercy to a prophet who was in rebellion. Well, we have a great study that is for us. It is before us as we will get into it in the weeks to come. But let us close this evening in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we have just barely scratched the surface, just introducing the book of Jonah this evening. I praise you for a book that challenges us, whether we are Sunday school children hearing it for the first time, or we are adults who have heard it thousands of times. Lord, I pray that we would not move through these 48 verses so rapidly that we miss the evidence of your mercy, the evidence of your grace and compassion demonstrated throughout its pages. Lord, I praise you for the story that is faithful and true of a prophet who had served well, but had a spot, a blind spot, when it came to your mercy to the Gentiles. We praise you that through his negative example we can learn. And I pray that we would do so for your glory and for our good this evening. Lord, keep us safe as we depart from here. We continue to pray, even in these moments, as the ministry is wrapping up, certainly at Mel Trotter this evening, we ask that you would lead many to a saving knowledge of you there. Use Pastor Mike as he preaches for your purposes, that your name would be glorified this evening. Use the rest of the fellowship that is serving there as your hands and feet, demonstrating the mercy and compassion that is free to all who will repent and come to know you as Savior. So Lord, we praise you and thank you for this evening, the time we've been able to spend together. We ask your blessing on us as we depart from here. In your son's name we pray. Amen.